Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ore Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When you're done with school, higher education might feel like a logical next step. But university has become pricier and by extension, much more risky. Now, a growing number of students are asking if a degree really is worth it. And... Autocrats have long relied on censoring literature to keep their people in check. Some reads have caused a stir in democratic states too. We take a look at a number of books that have been banned across the world. Read them if you dare. First up though... If there's one thing that American politicians across the aisle agree on, it's that the economy is broken. Donald Trump came into office promising to make America great again, and throughout Joe Biden's term, he's only been too happy to complain about the ailing health of the nation. Incredibly, we are now a failing nation. We are a nation in decline. And now these radical left lunatics want to interfere. Mr. Biden has concerns too, and he's spending about $2 trillion trying to remake the economy, in his words, trying to build back better. I ran for president to fundamentally change things, to make sure our economy works for everyone, so we can all feel that pride in what we do. To build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not from the top down. The worries, of course, do not stop at the White House. Nearly four-fifths of Americans tell pollsters that their children will be worse off than they are, the most since surveys of this sort began in 1990. But underneath all of this hand-wringing lies a very different story, one of sustained economic success and underappreciated outperformance. Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor. So here's the paradox, that despite all of these concerns, America is still the world's richest, most productive, and most innovative big economy. It's leaving its peers in the rich world ever further in its dust. But the fact that this is all going unrecognized by politicians and citizens alike may eventually lead the U.S. to scupper its own chances of continuing that success. Simon, tell us, how well is America doing really? Let me start by laying out kind of the most basic measure of economic success, which is GDP. If you turn back to 1990, America accounted for a quarter of the world's GDP at market exchange rates. More than 30 years on, 
that share is basically unchanged. Even though China has risen as quickly as it has, America still accounts for a quarter of the world's GDP. But the untold story is that America has sustained its performance and that really it's many other rich countries that have dropped off. So one basic way of looking at that is to compare America to the rest of the group of seven nations, the seven most advanced countries in the world, including Germany, Japan, Canada, the UK. America accounted for about 40% of their GDP in 1990. Today, it's nearly 60%. If you adjust for purchasing power parity, which is a way to basically look at what people can actually buy with their money, the only people richer in the world on a per-person basis live in extremely rich petro-states like Qatar or small financial hubs like Luxembourg. You know, if you look at average incomes, even in Mississippi, America's poorest state, they're about $46,000 per year in this purchasing parity term. That's higher than the average in France. And how has America maintained this position at the top of the global economy? The simplest way to break down how economies grow in the long run is to look at two different elements. One is the size of their workforce. America has long had a higher fertility rate and a more open immigration system than most other wealthy countries. If you look just at its working age population, it increased by about 35% between 1990 and 2022. If you compare that to Western Europe, the increase was only about 13%. In Japan, it was about 7%. So demographically, America has a lot of wind in its sails. The other element is productivity. America simply is able to get more out of its workers than most other rich countries. You know, quite often you'll hear a snipe about Americans that they work harder, but they don't necessarily work smarter. That's true in part. Americans do work longer hours than Europeans, but they're also more productive per hour worked. If you look at this per hour productivity between 1990 and 2022, went up by nearly 70% in America, but just about 55% in Europe. That's quite a substantial difference. How come the average American worker is outpacing their counterparts in places like Europe and Asia? There's three different things that are at play. In shorthand, you can look at it as skills, size, and what we call spunk. So the first point is that American workers are on average highly skilled. America spends about 40% more per pupil on education than the average member of the OECD, and that extra spending is even bigger at the post-secondary level. If you look at completion of tertiary education, roughly one-third of Americans of working age have completed university or university-like degrees. That's pretty much the highest in the rich world. Really, only Singapore is higher. The next part is America's size. The rewards to scale are especially important in the technology industry, which, of course, is a big strength of America's. Other parts of the world have tried to catch up to this. If you look at Europe, it's been trying to craft a unified market. But because of all of the different barriers that still exist there, it's difficult to get that same size and that same scale as America has. China is really the only other country that can rival America in this regard. But of course, China's domestic policies have been very counterproductive for its tech sector over the last number of years. So this size is something that really does set America apart. Now, tell us a bit more about that third reason. What do you mean by spunk? 
Well, spunk, which I think more conventionally we talk about as dynamism, is the way that the American business environment and work life are configured. First of all, you look at America's markets. It has by far the world's deepest, most liquid stock and bond markets. That's really important for generating funding for startups and for also winnowing out the winners from the losers in the American corporate sector. There's also just this hunger to start something new. If you look after the COVID shock, about 5.4 million new businesses were started in 2021. That was the highest on record. Part of the reason for that is that America is a very, very easy place to start a business in terms of regulation. It's also a very forgiving place when businesses go wrong. So there's a lot of competition. It keeps corporate bosses on edge. Surveys of management suggest that American companies are the best managed in the world. So there is that real sense of dynamism. There's also a kind of more negative edge to it, which is that it's also a country where it's very easy to get fired. That might be bad if you're a worker, but as far as the economy writ large is concerned, it means that you have this constant churning and this reallocation of labor to more productive companies, to more productive sectors. But Simon, much of these things you've mentioned, the lax labour laws, the long working hours, surely most modern economies want to avoid those. Well, there's a trade-off with all of these things. If you look at the tech sector, obviously a lot of big tech companies overhired and have now been trying to cut back their payrolls. So there's been big, big layoffs by the likes of Google and Amazon and Twitter. In America, it's been very easy for them to lay off workers. In Europe, they're still negotiating with their workers, with their unions about what exactly the terms of layoffs are going to look like. That's a real deterrent to investment going forward. There is a balance. I mean, you don't want to have people turned out of work and left to their own devices. You need to have a stronger unemployment insurance system. You need to have stronger medical insurance as well for people who aren't in jobs. That is an area where America has long been lagging Europe and other developed countries. It is clear that in some areas, America is failing its people. And the area I think in which this is starkest is if you look at life expectancy. Its average life expectancy through COVID declined to about 77 years. That's roughly five years behind other developed countries at the same income level. You would think that with the economy growing as quickly as it has, that America would have the means to tackle these problems, but it hasn't. It's not because of economic failures. I think it's really because of political failures. So America is facing some stark social issues. But as you said, there is a story of unrecognized economic success here, which could scupper America's chances. How might that happen? It's not just that the success is going unrecognized. It's that a winning message politically uh, has been to play up America's economic failures. That was true of Donald Trump. It's true of Joe Biden as well. And the problem there is that when they talk about the failures, obviously you then have to talk about how are you going to fix things. And so you've had legislation that will begin to change America's economic model. The turn to nativism, the turn against immigrants, begins to undercut America's demographic advantage. The turn towards protectionism, towards tariffs, towards big industrial subsidies, begins to undermine the market competition that has made America as dynamic as it has been. The longer this goes on, you really begin to see the toxins from America's incredibly divisive politics seeping into its economic structure. And the longer that goes on, the harder it is to imagine that the past 30 years of economic success 
will be repeated. So hopefully America is able to focus on what it has going for it, because there really is this lack of appreciation of how in the economic domain, America really has a lot to be grateful for. Simon, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ore. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Is a university degree still worth it? For decades, higher education has been touted as a key to social mobility and economic growth. However, people are becoming more and more disillusioned with the idea. A recent poll suggests many Americans believe that a degree is no longer worth pursuing. But are they right to turn their backs on higher education? Well, on the one hand, more and more people across the rich world are attending university. Mark Johnson is The Economist's education correspondent. On the other hand, some individuals and many governments are becoming increasingly likely to question whether it's actually worth it. So one recent poll published in the Wall Street Journal suggested that more than half of adults in America now think that higher education is no longer worth the time and money. But for decades, higher education was seen as a ticket for social mobility. Yes, indeed. And actually, for most individuals, university is still an extremely good deal. In America, someone who has a degree can expect to earn an average about 66% more than someone who does not. And indeed, today's premium is actually quite large in historic terms. So it's higher than it was for American college graduates in the 1970s, for example, who could expect to earn only about 35% more than a high school graduate. OK, so the evidence seems pretty clear. If there's such a huge advantage, then why are some people still not convinced? Well, after decades of growth, the college wage premium has now stagnated or started to fall in, in many rich countries. At the same time, more countries are asking students to pay a share of the costs of university, and those fees are often rising. Probably the most dramatic changes in England, where the fees paid by learners have risen from nothing in the late 90s to more than £9,000 today, which is about $11,000. In America, the out-of-pocket fee paid by your average bachelor's student is actually a bit lower than that. It's around $8,000, or it was in 2018, although there are lots of people who pay less and lots of people who pay more. But that's still four times as high as it was in the 1970s in real terms. And obviously, all of these trends, rising costs in particular, provoke ill feeling and, for some people, cause real hardship. OK, but could university be worth it if you go to the right one or study the right subject, maybe? Well, if your goal is to make megabucks from a university, there are a couple of obvious things to do. Choosing the right subject should be your number one priority. So by far the best earning degrees in America by a long way are in things such as engineering, computer science and business. 
On the other hand, some research in Britain has shown that some degree courses are quite likely to lead to negative returns, you know, where the cost of the fees and the time spent studying may never be recouped through higher earnings. So in Britain, that was especially true for courses in the creative arts. It was also more likely to be the case for people studying things such as agriculture, some languages, philosophy, and a few other things. Generally speaking, where you study matters rather less than what you study. So there's some evidence in America that the financial returns to a degree are on average a bit higher for people who go to public universities than the more prestigious private nonprofits, in part because the fees in those swanky universities are so much higher. But all of that comes with the caveat that in America there's a long tail of very poor colleges and universities who seem to provide students with little value whatever it is they teach. So again, why might some people still think that university is not worth it? I think one thing that has changed as higher education has expanded is that the endeavour has become a lot riskier. So the range of possible outcomes for a student appears to have widened quite significantly. Now that means rewards for the luckiest are increasing, but there's probably more chance than there once was of having the worst possible financial outcome, which is you know to end up ultimately a bit poorer over your lifetime than if you hadn't bothered. So that kind of poor outcome, it's especially likely for people who drop out of uni or who incur lots of extra costs by taking a long time to finish. And actually, there's a lot of those people. So in rich countries, only about 40% of people who start a bachelor's degree get it in the time they are supposed to. And at least a quarter never get one at all, even given you know three or four more years. Uh, and I also think one reason perceptions are especially negative in America is that people who make bad investments in higher education there are by and large forced to suffer quite you know, significant consequences, in some cases significant financial distress, whereas other places with highish fees, such as uh, Britain and Australia, have a more lenient kinds of loan systems, which to some extent save people from some of the most acute consequences of having made a poor choice. Okay, so if I were a confused prospective student, what kind of data could I use to figure out if university would be right for me? I mean, one important recent trend is that governments are starting to pull together big data sets, you know, often drawing information in from tax offices that show actual earnings for millions of students years after they started on their courses. In the past, researchers who wanted to identify the winners and the losers had to rely on surveys, which sometimes had quite limited sample sizes. You know, nowadays, in lots of places in the Nordic countries, in Britain, increasingly in America, you can see the earnings of people who take individual courses at specific universities. It's also getting easier to compare graduates with similar people who chose not to go to university. So you can actually help isolate how far the degree itself is responsible for someone's higher earnings rather than just some other kind of advantage that they already enjoyed. In America, this kind of data is starting to be released on a website called the College Scorecard. It's growing more sophisticated all the time. And in the long run, this kind of data opens up quite tricky questions for governments about how and whether they should start you know, regulating universities on metrics such as the future earnings of their students. Now, Mark, tell us, do you think that a university degree is worth it for the average undergraduate student? In most places, for most learners, the financial returns to higher education are still extremely healthy. Now, one guess in America is that the typical return to a bachelor's degree, once you've subtracted all the costs of attending, is around you know, 14% a year, which is far better than putting money in stocks and bonds and, frankly, probably also leads to a more interesting life. 
And that sum is well above, you know, the eight to nine percent return that American graduates were recouping in the 1970s, which was you know, before graduate wages and indeed before tuition fees started to soar. The problem is that there is doubtless a growing minority of students who are doing extremely poorly and quite what to do about that is only going to become a hotter issue in the years ahead. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. In 1989, Iran issued a fatwa calling for the murder of Salman Rushdie, author of The Satanic Verses. Stephanie Studer is our US digital editor. This was one of the most famous modern examples of hostility to literature. And that hostility has not faded over time, as we saw last year. Rushdie was stabbed multiple times in New York in August 2022 as he was preparing to give a lecture. He has since lost sight in one eye. Lots of countries banned the Satanic Verses after it was published in 1988, and it's still banned in at least a dozen. I think book bans are really interesting because they tell you something about a time and a place and a people. And I wrote a piece recently recommending seven books that remain banned in the 21st century. One of the books that I recommended for The Economist was another book that prompted a fatwa in the early 1990s, but uh, lesser known, called Laja by Teslima Nasrin. Her novel depicts the revenge that was meted out by Muslims to Bangladesh's Hindu minority after a Hindu mob tore down a mosque in Ayodhya in India in 1992. And we follow the Dutta family and the novel depicts rather beautifully and harrowingly the scars of the earlier spasms of anti-Hindu violence that this family still bears. When the book was released, after about six months, the government of Bangladesh banned it. Miss Nasrin fled to Sweden. Another author who had to flee after publishing books that fell afoul of the government was Uzbekistan's Hamid Ismailov. He fled in 1992, accused by the government of unacceptable democratic tendencies. And in exile ever since, he's written more than a dozen novels. All of them remain banned in Uzbekistan. And I recommend in particular The Devil's Dance, which is the first of his novels to be translated into English. Rather perfectly, this particular novel of Ismailov's reimagines the lives of real Uzbek dissident intellectuals during their time in prison in the 1930s, just before they were executed. But it isn't just autocracies that ban books. Friend by Pek Nam Nyong, a North Korean novelist who is beloved in that country, is censored by the South Korean army. Although it's widely available in South Korea in bookshops, the army forbids its soldiers to read it for fear that they might feel too much empathy 
for the North Koreans portrayed in this tender novel. Sat in America, I've been struck to see how democracies too can feel a certain panic over books. Armies, prisons, prim parents and progressive zealots all have reasons to censor literature that they fear could overthrow their own values. And one of the best known in America is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Parents bristle at passages that depict sexual violence in the book. It was the fourth most banned book in the school year ending in 2022. The American Library Association says that its tally of ban requests from school boards and removals from library shelves has never been so high. 1,600 titles in 2021 alone. In 2016, Virginia's legislature passed the Beloved Bill, which is named for another of Morrison's controversial novels, to allow parents to exempt their children from reading assignments if they consider the material to be sexually explicit. Virginia's Democratic governor vetoed that bill. His opposition to it was, rather remarkably, one reason he lost a bid for re-election to a Republican candidate. Even children's books aren't safe. Sometimes they can provoke the most ire. And Tango Makes Three is a good example of this. It's a delightful tale based on the real story of a penguin egg adopted by two male penguins in New York's Central Park Zoo. It's appeared on nine occasions in the American Library Association's annual list of top 10 books banned from American libraries. And America is not alone. Since 2015, Venetian nursery schools have not been able to read to their children Piccolo Uovo, or Little Egg, based on the same tale from New York's zoo. To see a full list of Stephanie's pick of books that have been banned, click on the link in the show notes. And to see other reading recommendations by Economist staff, on subjects ranging from mixing cocktails to spying, go to the Economist Reads section of our website. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcasts at economists.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you're really missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economists.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. 
What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.